0: Hey there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson, welcoming you to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. I'm very excited about this one. A uh, good friend of the show, Jonathan Wilson, is back. Um, and I want to kind of set it up a little bit. This may seem um, like a weird time to be in history to be talking about Francis Schaefer, of all people. Uh, but uh, we uh, with the kind of events of the Supreme Court and the recent Dobbs um, decision... Uh, You may or may not know it, but he's extremely relevant to where we're at right now, and we'll get there eventually in this conversation, but I want to talk to Jonathan Wilson, who has, about a year ago, did a really interesting and insightful um, series of posts, blog posts about Francis Schaeffer's, or uh, his film essay, his documentary series, How Should We Then Live?, Uh, and I want to talk to Jonathan about that today. So Jonathan, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm hanging out. How are you? I'm doing very well, actually. Um, all things considered, I always say I'm probably about the luckiest person in the world. And so if I complain about anything, it just sounds ridiculous. And so, um, anyway, so Jonathan, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. This was your idea. Oh gosh, a few months ago, actually, or a few several weeks ago, you reached out to me about, doing something about this series of um, posts in which you do a a little introduction on your really great blog, uh, Blue Book Diaries. Uh, I will uh, link to that in the description for this episode. If you just scroll down, you can click on that and get to Jonathan's um, blog. And you decided to do a a series of, of posts reacting to each episode, basically, of Francis Schaeffer's, um, series about kind of the decline and fall of Western civilization, essentially. And, uh, and, and really insightful stuff, really powerful. And I was not expecting it to be as timely, um, as it was. Uh, and so I really am interested, uh, in hearing your thoughts on this. So Jonathan, do you want to talk first of all? Just, let's just kind of set this up a little bit about Francis Schaefer himself. For those people who may not know him, I think he's a person with much more influence than name recognition for most people. Mm. And so do you want to talk a little bit about who he was? I think that's probably true. He'll often be mentioned uh,
1: by, let's say, insiders as... One of the two or three most influential evangelical intellectuals of the 20th century that is influential on evangelicals in the United States, especially, but also probably influential in this, you know, the scheme of uh, American politics in the end. He was born in 1912, I think, and, and died in 1984. So he's very much a figure of the 20th century born in Philadelphia, or in the Germantown neighborhood, very close to where I teach, actually. But he becomes a Presbyterian missionary in Europe in, I think, 1948. And in Europe, in Switzerland especially, uh, where he sets up for, for decades to come, uh, Schaefer becomes, with his wife Edith, the founder of... A little sort of, I think I described it as something like a Protestant ashram. (laughs) This little (laughs) community of spiritual wanderers and seekers offering hospitality to people passing through Switzerland, often Americans actually, but people from around the world, um, who were seeking answers to life's big questions. This is how Schaeffer described his life's work, as he becomes this kind of... Uh, This strange kind of guru, uh, while still thinking of himself as a missionary, fundamentally, he advertises this community, which is called Labri or the shelter in French, as offering um, uh, honest answers to honest questions to anyone who is asking, and offering a kind of a chance for people to explore philosophically with the expectation that they will eventually find their way to... Schaeffer's form of Protestant Christianity. Um, He was a a Calvinist. He was theologically very conservative in in evangelical terms of what that means, Um, and later on actually became one of the most important figures articulating uh, modern evangelicals' conceptions of biblical inerrancy. Uh, The the idea that the Bible is completely without error in every detail, including details of, of history and science, um, as well as in, you know, supposedly spiritual matters. But he offered a lot of room for people who came to, to visit him to explore ideas and. Um, and by the late 1960s, he began publishing books, uh, starting with uh, *The God Who Is There*. Um, yeah, *The God Who Is There* and *Escape from Reason* around 1968. Eventually, by the late 1970s, he began making two really influential film series that. Were shown around the United States in churches. I mean, for years to come, that are still watched today by many evangelicals, um, and there are companion books that are still read today. Especially the one I'm interested in, which is the first one, which is "How Should We Then Live," which is about um, uh, essentially, uh, you know, the 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 sweep of Western society, Western culture, from the time of Christ down to Schaeffer's own day. Uh, This is still used, still taught in Christian academies and sometimes Christian colleges in the United States. It's still cited by uh, sometimes uh, influential politicians. I I mentioned in the series Michelle Bachman cited Francis Schaeffer as the key influence on her political life when she was young. Uh, It was also an important influence on my own parents, and I, I, I think I, this didn't make it into the series, but I think I actually found an advertisement for the actual film screening that, that my parents might have gone to see in 1977 or 1978, uh, which they've described as a turning point in their lives. So Schaefer, for those who know the name, Schaefer has proved an enduring influence, and for many other people, uh, in evangelicalism or beyond evangelicalism in the United States, um, Schaefer's influence is felt in a lot of different ways today.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. I want to um, touch on a couple of things you brought up there. Labrie, for one thing, see if you see pictures of Francis Schaefer, he's very. You use the word guru. He's got this kind of weird hipster fashion sense with this strange, like, giant goatee and this, the the socks pulled. <laughs> <laughs> all the way up to his knees and all that sort right. of right
1: knee socks <laughs> knee socks knickerbocker pants uh
0: usually uh, a turtleneck yeah um so he's he seems like somebody who is fashion-wise and I'm not saying this is a uh, a crass, you know, decision on his part but so trying to fashion-wise in in terms of fashion at least present himself as approachable to the counterculture uh he seems absolutely seemed, okay and, and yes. so I feel like he and you mentioned in some of the posts that Labrie uh, brought people like famous rock stars would uh, either go there or be interested in going there. Bob Dylan apparently said he was going to go and never showed up or something. And uh, and so, but so he has this really interesting way of outreach. Let's just say to the to popular culture, and I think. When I'm reading about Labrie, and you say that it still exists in some um, some form oh. today, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. But it, it does seem to serve as a kind of model for a lot of, quote-unquote, evangelical outreach missions, like Christian coffee shops, those sorts of things uh, that are sort of open to seekers. The seeker-sensitive uh, ministry seems to um, build a lot on what I'm reading about Labrie in your posts. Absolutely, uh, with the caveat that
1: a lot of contemporary seeker-sensitive um, culture in in evangelical churches seems to be about marketing, yeah. and <laughs> and Labrie was almost um, uh, it, it was strangely committed. To a kind of anti-marketing. They had this philosophy uh, originally um, that people would show up if God led them there. Mm. And word spread initially over over years in the 50s and 60s, mainly by word of mouth. You know, friends would invite friends. Um, There was, however... An element of deliberately cultivating ties with influential people. When uh, you know Eric Clapton showed an interest in the book *Escape from Reason*, I think it was. Uh, when Timothy Leary was traveling in Europe and wanted to drop by, um, the uh, I think Mick Jagger expressed an interest. Uh, these were very exciting moments for the people at Labrie because you know this meant maybe. Someone with cultural influence is interested in the kinds of questions and answers that we are are posing here at Labrie. Um, but yes, uh, Schaeffer dressed like a beatnik. Fundamentally, yeah. that that was the image he projected, and it seems also to have been authentically what he was interested in. He he he. I should say. Um, he struggled with incapacitating depression all his life. He had, by the accounts of people who knew him, he had an explosive temper sometimes. Um, he could be probably very difficult to live with based on, you know, all of the accounts I have seen. According to some of the sources we have, he's really at his ease the most when he's in an art museum or when he is at a rock concert, in in some cases, actually, uh, you know, there, uh, um, his son Frank uh, or Frankie has an account in his memoir of Schaefer sort of passing along a joint that people were smoking at uh, at a concert in the '60s. He didn't smoke it, but he didn't try to interfere. Like this was his element in in some way, even though he had grown up in. Uh, the fundamentalist culture that sort of produced, you know, Billy Graham style evangelists in suits and ties. Um, Schaefer, I think became more himself in some ways, the more he got away from fundamentalist culture. Yeah.
0: And you, you write a lot about a lot of paradoxes, uh, in his person and, and in his project. And that's something that to me, of course, is, uh, Attractive. I, I, I'm drawn to paradoxes. I find them very interesting and, and actually unescapable. And and I feel like that's one of the things that makes him such an alluring figure for me is this sort of paradox of being both part of the counterculture and part of conservative sort of theological culture. And in fact, right. you, you can see Labrie as being an almost a, a, a adjacent project to sort of the Jesus People movement or something like that. Yes. Um, and but then when you see how should we then live? That is very much adjacent to thief in the night uh, <laughs> in times kind of right. uh, you know uh, you know propaganda. And so both of them exist in the same person, and I think it's very fascinating
1: right. And this gets to Schaeffer's reputation with outsiders to the evangelical movement today, which tends to be very much about a late phase in his career when he's associated with, you know, I'm focusing today on how should we then live, which is this historical documentary series. Uh, but he's most famous for the second film series he produced with the future surgeon general C Everett Koop, um, whatever happened to, to the human race, Mm -hmm. which is this, this frontal attack on abortion and euthanasia, Mm -hmm. um, as the, the signal, um, failings and atrocities and warning signs for america at the end of the 1970s and the beginning of the 1980s schaefer's reputation today for most americans who are not deeply involved in evangelical intellectual life is as the guy who supposedly turned evangelicals against abortion and made abortion their defining political issue Um, and and in that way became responsible uh the, the story goes responsible for basically the entire shape of the the modern religious right both evangelicals involvement in it at all and it's it's focus on uh, abortion and sort of you know issues of the body yeah. as the defining political issues uh, they engage with what I try to show in this series is that is absolutely part of the story. Um, but there are interesting things to say about how he got to that point. And it's a narrative about history. It's a, this, this, this grand narrative about what Western civilization had been and had become that drove, actually, his investment in the abortion issue specifically, yeah, the evidence shows. He viewed it, at least in 1977, he viewed abortion as primarily a symptom yeah of the real issue on his mind and in some ways weirdly enough he was led into it by his anti-communist leanings yeah um but that takes some explaining
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and we'll get there um <clears throat> i I'll, I'll sort of leave it up to you as we how to organize your discussion of the film series it's in 10 parts and you have i believe eight posts that uh or uh that dis- that disentangle each one of those parts. And so I think it's, uh, I'll leave it up to you how to, dis- how to organize your discussion of the flow of history that, that he presents to us here. But before we do that, I just real quickly want to hit on, um, two things. One is his son, Frank Schaefer. So I have a personal, um, story. I, I think I said this publicly already. I think so. About in 2016, I recorded, I think two episodes of the show from the Wild Goose Festival in, uh, in North Carolina. And, uh, and I found myself in a very awkward position in that environment. It, I felt, I cool. felt, ju- it felt like, liberal camp meeting in a lot of ways to me. And so I felt right. like as, as I feel uncomfortable in camp meeting uh, th- at this point in my life, I felt just as uncomfortable in the liberal version of camp meeting. <laughs> and so I felt very sort of um, at, in in the margins of that, of that place. And so um, I think I went on the Christian feminist podcast after that and talked to Carla. Um, you were uh, to uh, uh, disentangle that, but Frank Schaefer was there and, and, and I found him to be, just an utterly, I think I, I think I mentioned this repugnant person. He, he just was rude <laughs> oh and, uh, just vulgar. And mm-hmm. I thought he was angry. And I think he did more harm to his cause than good because of his tone. Right. And so, uh, this is my own personal opinion of a human being. I hope I can't get sued for this, <laughs> but he was, uh, he was not my favorite person, um, at that place. And it was part of my own kind of, um, I think disenchantment with the whole enterprise that I was there in 2016 and who knows what it's like now. I know that uh, Reverend Barber goes there a lot and I, I have a lot of respect for him and, and that sort of thing. Right. But, um, but um, I, do you want to talk about Frank Schaefer? Cause he had actually quite a bit of influence on the direction of this film series.
1: Yeah, in many ways, it was his creation uh, at the time. So uh, Francis Schaeffer is Fran to his friends was Francis Schaeffer the fourth, Frank Schaeffer as he's called now is Francis Schaeffer the fifth, and at the time everyone called him Frankie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very young at the time; he was in his very early twenties when when most of what we're talking about happened. Uh, he was born in. 1952 i think so when the series came out he would have been about 25 and he's uh he became the director of the series after they had to fire the original director um but the idea according to the primary sources i've been able to see probably came to frank schaefer in conversation with billy zeoli uh excuse me um who is someone we should we should talk about eventually, uh, who ran Gospel Films. Mm. Uh, in a discussion the same summer that Richard Nixon resigned, possibly even the same week. It would have been very close to that time. Um, Billy uh, Zioli was the personal spiritual advisor of soon-to-be President Gerald Ford. So from the beginning, this film series took place in the context of republican politics actually right. <laughs> and i show in the series i discovered in the course of of writing this series of posts actually just how much um, just how closely connected the Schaefer family was to Gerald Ford's family mm. while they were producing the series. In fact, Francis and Edith Schaefer were able to spend a night in the White House um, like, and talk with, the, with now the president about their plans for this series about what went wrong with America. Right. And they kind of got the president's blessing to do this. Edith Schaefer became a friend of Betty Ford. And, um, and Billy uh, Zioli Got funding for the series primarily from Richard DeVos (laughs) Sr., who you may may or may, if you're playing along at home, is the father in law of Betsy DeVos. Yeah, I've heard that. uh, He's a major Republican funder and the co founder of of Amway. Anyway, Frank Schaefer today takes both credit and blame for this series because Frank Schaefer's politics have changed dramatically, as have his religious views. In his early 20s, he was this kind of very angry young evangelical, uh, you know, railing against the depravities of Western culture and its need to return and repent. And the series kind of probably bears the stamp of his zeal in that respect. Later on, he had, I think it's probably fair to call it a kind of deconversion experience, and uh, ended up. Assigning himself the blame for introducing his father to American politics and to leaders of the religious right. Assigning himself the blame for his father's focus on abortion uh, as an issue. And ever since then, I think, uh, you know, Frank Schaefer has been in various ways grappling with his family's legacy. You, you've described him as angry. that. That anger comes through in in his writing about his family, um, even as sometimes you know he he tries to to view his parents sympathetically. And some of his later writing, you know, it's it's a it's a very dark portrait okay. of Labrie and the the Schaefer enterprise that comes from uh, from young Frank's work.
0: Yeah. So I, I don't want to you know dwell on that too much. I just, uh, this is sort of my own personal connection to this story. But yeah, I, I did find it very interesting that a lot of the kind of paranoid tone of this series has its root in a very sort of uh, motivated Paranoid person <laughs> who is much closer, like most closer connected to um, the counterculture to the to the youth culture of the day than uh, his father was. Right. So I mean, just in terms of his age. And so. Um, right. Yeah. So uh, let's then get into the show. How then shall we begin this discussion? of, <laughs> of this? And so I'll leave that up to you. Uh, so uh, I'll let you begin uh, talking about the uh, the series itself.
1: Well, here's the basic idea. 1974, uh, or around that time, the Schaeffers together conceive of the idea of this grand account of um, the the story of Western civilization from an evangelical Christian perspective. This was an answer to a series that had uh, been produced on British television by Kenneth Clark called Civilization about five years earlier. The, the Civilization series was this... Um, uh, this whiggish account of history, as we would say, you know, the history is the the story of humanity's upward progress as it gets away from, you know, religious benightedness. Um, I haven't actually watched all of Kenneth Clark's series, so I'm going by what the Shafers' impression of it was. But they discovered, uh, you know, in conversation with Billy Zioli of Gospel Films that uh, they would um, you know, they might have funding to make a film series that could be shown, you know, by churches could be shown that, you know, they had aspirations to show it on television. And actually it did air on Dutch public television, um, sort of a complicated story. But Dutch public television um, is kind of a federation of different broadcasters, including religious broadcasters. So the, the evangelical Calvinist par- portion of Dutch public broadcasting actually aired this series when it came out. So they spent about two years working on it. By the beginning of 1977, they were ready to release the films along with a companion book by the same name, How Should We Then Live? The title is a reference to a verse in, uh, in Ezekiel, uh, sort of prophesying the, uh, the, the failure of a civilization that fails... I mean, the context, of course, is ancient Israel, but the, the failure of a civilization that, that uh, fails to return to God. It, it is, in other words, a warning, a, a story of, we, of the Western past that becomes a warning for evangelical audiences and their friends today about what needs to change in order to avoid a catastrophe. They wanted to film uh, 13 episodes originally, half an hour each. In the end, they were only able to cut together 10. Uh, they were operating largely with an, an, amateur film team learning how to make a movie as they, as they went, they had about a million dollars in funding though. And they were able to go on tour around Europe, filming uh, Francis Schaeffer talking at, uh, in, in front of masterpieces of European art um, and in, you know, ancient Roman ruins, for example, in, in uh, in their, home country now of Switzerland or in other places, um, Schaefer just talks to the camera about his theory about what went wrong with the West in any given time and place. And he produces this argument that fundamentally the problem with the West is that it kept embracing humanism. Humanism is his great enemy. Humanism is his, his, his alternative to Calvinism, essentially, is... Uh, the, a view that elevates human reason, human accomplishments, uh, you know, this is a, his understanding of it, that makes man the measure of all things, rather than building a civilization on the word of God, as revealed in the Bible. So, uh, the series begins with Rome in the time of the Christians, so Schaeffer has an account of uh, the, the persecutions of the first Christians, and how Rome fell basically because it was not Christian enough. This is his account of what happened to the Roman Empire. He he moves into, I mean, eventually the Renaissance and the Reformation, which is sort of his success story in the whole thing. The Reformation was what got it right. Moves into talking about the scientific revolution and the age of political revolutions, and ends up in the late 20th century in a world where the Holocaust has happened, in a world where modern art seems... Uh, incoherent and meaningless in Schaeffer's reading of it modern film is a a portrait of despair and the question is then where do we go from here and Schaeffer says there are two possibilities either we turn back to biblical Christianity by which he means reformed Christianity essentially um, or we have dissolution and he says ultimately a turn to authoritarianism. If we do not have a society capable of governing itself in in uh th- through moral conviction and and biblical values and absolutes, he says we are open to a takeover by a communist style political tyranny.
0: Yeah. I so I have to say I have no memory specifically of this, right? And I I'm of the age – I would have been a young child when this was um, produced. And so, the ideas – it was so influential. The ideas had certainly had time to sort of percolate by the time I became conscious of the world and my faith, right? And so, I don't specifically remember – the name Francis Schafer being used. I don't specifically remember anybody showing this film. I do specifically remember going to people's houses and watching thief in the night movies, right? I do remember that. Um I don't remember this. And so, but I will say all of the ideas of this are so familiar to me. Like I it they right. clearly influenced either directly or indirectly. Uh, so much of the culture that i grew up in as a nazarene uh in uh in america in ohio right and so uh, and nazarenes are a, a strange i think i think someone should do some work on this it's not my field but if, if you know any historians or <laughs> interested but i think nazarenes have an interesting relationship within evangelicalism because they have their own publishing house that they maintain to this day and i feel like in some ways a lot of Nazarenes are somewhat insulated from the kind of the marketing aspects of Christianity, um, because they had their own house that they would go to for that sort of thing. Right. And so, um, so I, the ideas had made in, made it into my consciousness, but not necessarily the film itself is what I'm trying to say here. And so, but, uh, and so much of it reminds me of frankly, like thief in the night. And so much of it reminds me of this paranoid, um, frightened view of culture this this like uh pervasive uh culture that's coming to get us right and and i feel Uh like you make a point to talk about how you know if you look at movies from the 70s i think you talk about taxi driver at one point in one of the posts right right There is a sense that everything's ending right there is a sense that everything's gone wrong so there is like a ready-made audience for the paranoia uh of this uh of this series am i wrong
1: no, I think that's exactly right. Uh, one of the things I did when I started this series, in addition to watching an episode or two episodes at a time and writing about them from my perspective now as a history teacher, right? Um, I mean, that's the fundamental excuse for this series. But I also did research in primary and secondary sources trying to reconstruct the situation when this film series was made and when it was distributed. And I showed that... Uh, It is actually worthwhile to talk about this series in particular as a turning point for evangelical culture and for distributing, not single handedly, but being an important source, distributing a lot of this kind of background radiation of belief about what had happened Mm -hmm. to Western society uh, through multiple evangelical subcultures. Mm -hmm. I mean, I grew up very much. In the shadow of Francis Schaeffer's work, I did not grow up Calvinist. You know, I did not grow up Presbyterian. I grew up in a, mostly a kind of a Baptist tradition um, with some, some fairly significant differences of theology. But I can tell you, I grew up in a world where uh, it was generally understood that this had been the shape of civilization in Europe and the United States over the previous two, two millennia. And, but I, I show, for example, I show how this happened. I show in, in the series through newspaper advertisements, how uh, the Schaeffers took this show on the road. When the film came out, they embarked on a national tour. Actually, I think they went to Canada too, um, uh, meeting sometimes in in convention centers to uh, addressing hundreds maybe thousands of people at a time screening episodes of the film in these public events orchestrated in conjunction with local churches where they advertised the book version for sale they offered churches uh the rest of the film series to screen you know for small groups or in in study sessions and revival meetings afterward and This film was shown in 1977, 78, and 79 all over the United States in tiny churches in the middle of nowhere as well as in big cities. It would be screened Uh, Sometimes just a couple of episodes would be screened, but usually it would be screened either in sort of like a a revival style weekend, Mm. Uh, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, you show different episodes, or week by week, you show an episode at a time, you place newspaper advertisements and publicize this and try to draw in seekers, you know, you try to draw in people who are not necessarily... Part of the tribe, but uh, who you think might be interested in these topics? So the advertisements that churches place in newspapers uh, talk about. And in one case, I found they say that this film series will show the causes of the recession. Yes. <laughs> like what what's going wrong in the U.S. economy in the 1970s? We're going to show what that what that is. Then a lot of them talk about crime. Why yeah. you can't walk the street safely at night? That's a big theme. Um, uh, and, you know, this happened in hundreds of places, um, and countless thousands of people it, at the end of the 1970s would have seen this film in those contexts, okay. from South Dakota to Louisiana and from California to Delaware, uh, okay. all over the country. So I think there is a very strong case to be made that this film series did jumpstart the kind of... um the kind of specific cultural paranoia that you're describing, um, it didn't invent it, uh, but it gave a more intellectual shape
0: to it. And I would also suggest that it has a a, a lot of overlap with conspiracy theorizing. Um, a, a there's a, a way in which I'll, I'll, the, my next question is going to be about his historical method of, of sort of cherry picking uh facts from history and crafting his own narrative out of to, to and, and shaping them to fit his own narrative about the decline of civilization but in, in some ways i I do want to give it credit um the series is very interesting um to watch oh yes i mean it's it's not um I, I'm, I'm just talking on an aesthetic level and so and actually i feel like it has Caught on to a, a zeitgeist of, of its time, uh, stylistically, that kind of documentary it very much looks like something like *In Search of* uh, with Leonard Nimoy, mm-hmm. the, the the cryptozoology show, right? right. Um, and I pr- was particularly reminded, for some reason, it drew to mind Eric Von Daniken's *Chariots of the Gods*, um, which is you know just a few years before this, I think. And and so I do feel like. There's a a way in which it's mimicking the style of other forms of conspiratorial forms of documentary entertainment, I will say. And so, and I particularly think that's important. I think I particularly want to talk about Daniken, Von Daniken, because I feel like Schaefer, his approach to reading history mirrors the ancient alien. And if people who don't know, Eric Von Daniken is sort of the one of the forefathers the more, more modern forefather of the ancient alien phenomenon <laughs> with, with Giorgio and his hair uh, on the history channel and so um, but they all come from this very interesting way of reading history and I want to maybe begin with Rome because um, he selects a certain era of Rome <laughs> uh, to kind of right. represent all of Rome and and that's that signals a problem that will become persistent for you uh, as a historian, right? In the series. So do you want to maybe begin by explaining what he does there? And then I'll just sort of let you walk through the rest of his um, epics that he goes through.
1: Yeah. Schaefer never attempts a comprehensive overview of anything. Mm-hmm. This is one thing that I think is very important from the standpoint of my, my writing and my interest, because my blog is fundamentally a teaching blog and, and I'm, I, conducted this series fundamentally to provide a a walkthrough of an influential kind of pedagogy you know something that as i said before is still used in christian academies and sometimes christian colleges today um, at least of the sort of more bible college flavor Um, but it's not a textbook it's not meant to be a survey of western history Instead, it deals with these kinds of essences of times and places. Uh, there's this kind of essence of Roman empireness <laughs> that Francis Schaeffer is trying to describe, and this essence of the Renaissance. Um, and this is probably partly a result of. The fact that Schaefer was an autodidact, I and mean, he had a college education, which is not necessarily something to take for granted for an, a missionary of his generation. Um, he had at- attended what's now Drexel University in Philadelphia for a while. Um, he was well trained as, uh, you know, as, as a, a missionary of what originally for him was the Bible Presbyterian Church. Um, but he didn't really have much in the way of a formal history education. And it shows in the in the way he approaches history intuitively, I think. he um he has this sense, he used the word flow, actually. There's a flow to history. He's very interested in the idea that there is this kind of stream of stuff in any time and place. And the details, if you follow the metaphor, you know, all the different details are not the thing. You know, a, a flow is is made up of all kinds of different things that, that jump are jumbled together, and it would be a mistake to focus on the details of it. The point is where it started and where it's going.
0: Yeah, last time you were on the show, we were discussing Lionel Trilling, criticizing the Parrington currents in American thought. Right. It's a very similar sort of uh, approach, right? Right, and
1: that's a, that, you know, that's a good point, that this is not Schaefer's unique contribution to historical discourse you know it's very common i think in 20th century uh writing especially by people who are not historians by training but who are maybe doing sort of li- literary studies work related yeah. to history yeah. or something like this but um you know Schaeffer's account of the roman empire begins with the death of christ essentially <laughs> yeah. uh, he's not interested in you know the previous 200 years or so of the Roman Empire forming. He's not interested in the, you know, the previous 500 years of that of the city of Rome. He's not interested to, for the most part, he's not interested in the subsequent centuries either. Um, You know, usually we would say the fall of the Western part of the Roman Empire happens uh, late in the fifth century, but parts of the Roman Empire continue to exist until, depending who you ask, at least the 1450s, if not longer than that. Um, Schaefer's not interested in that. He's interested in the idea that Rome was this place where the first Christians were persecuted, and Rome is this place that fell apart. You know, he has basically these two points in in time. You have the persecutions, which themselves are a much more complicated story than, than he suggests, and then you have the fall of the empire, Maybe 400 years later. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) Um, this this produces a really comical effect. I think if you actually know much about the details of the the larger story that he's purporting to describe, it doesn't necessarily mean that you know it doesn't automatically mean he's wrong when he makes his claims about what Rome Mm. was and and you know why the Roman Empire fell. But it does mean we should approach the story from the beginning. With a certain amount of caution, yeah. I think, and history teachers who use this to teach the Roman Empire are probably starting out from a very difficult place if their goal is to to really tell students about any aspect of Roman society that is not directly tied to Schaeffer's claims.
0: Yeah, that's, um, that's a great introduction to the general problem that you have uh, with his approach to history, right? And I think uh, I want to make some points later on about how this is not uncommon. And it's it's almost set the precedent for how a lot of Christian, uh, quote unquote, I don't know. I don't know how to say it, like Christian nationalist um, narratives of um of uh, of America of politics and culture, uh, I think that um, this sort of sets the, the tone for a lot of approaches that we have what we see later on. But he doesn't stop with Rome, of course he he jumps through his, he jumps through time and he sort of selects you know the the times you would select, you have sort of the, the middle ages and then the, the you know, the Renaissance and, and all these sorts of things. So where does he go to? What, what's an, what's an interesting next step for us to talk about? I don't think we need to talk about all 10 episodes, but uh, what, what's an interesting next moment. Um, I know you want to talk about the reformation at some point, but.
1: Well, talking about his episode on the middle ages and his episode on the Renaissance together, I think makes sense yeah. because One of the characteristics of this series is a very deep ambivalence about Catholicism. That's one thing that we would need to to note. Schaeffer came up in a time of intense anti-Catholicism in his own tradition. He was... Uh, you know in his his conversion experience as a as a teenager in his his formation as a minister and missionary he is in very conservative fundamentalist presbyterian circles one of his his uh, mentors who later became a critic was Carl uh, McIntyre who's notorious as a, a virulently anti-communist preacher who you know believed Eisenhower was a Pinko and uh, you know accused uh, accused people who cooperated with Billy Graham of selling out to the Communists wow. it really was that blatant yeah. um, uh, you know, Carl McIntyre and, and Francis, were al- Francis Schaeffer were allies for a while in sort of denominational debates about the, the authority of scripture. Um, before Schaeffer had this kind of turn toward a more irenic and, and open um, and kind of countercultural um, uh, willingness to talk about hard questions, as, as he saw it. Anyway, the ambivalence of Schaeffer's theology comes through in these episodes because Schaeffer still is committed to the idea that the Roman Catholic Church is badly wrong about theology from its foundation. That the Roman Catholic Church does not have a view of the Bible specifically that allows it to reach true theological conclusions. And one of the arguments of the series is that you have to have that view of the Bible. It's not just Christianity. It's biblical inerrancy, ultimately right. that matters for holding together a civilization. And he claims that, you know, even in, I don't know, the, the 13th and 14th century, even then Europeans were already having sort of their civilization fall apart because of Catholicism's lack of, Of stress on biblical authority this is his account at the same time he wants to defend the Christianity of the Middle Ages from secular attacks he does not want and here you know he he shares some common ground with a lot of historians actually he wants to show that the Middle Ages were not the the dark ages he wants to show that um, Western Europe was Artistically creative, that it had, uh, you know, enduring values expressed in its official life and its its forms of community, um, um, belonging, and so he's caught in this tension between offering a very positive view of Catholicism as a kind of salt and light in culture, in the Middle Ages, and on the other hand suggesting that catholic theologians are the reason that you know the soviet union formed right (laughs) um in this as this is a word we keep coming back to there is this kind of very paranoid tendency that comes partly from schaefer's background in very paranoid circumstances in uh, american fundamentalism
0: yeah um and this Cascades throughout every episode. I know that when you start talking about the the scientific revolution, uh, he, he you you point out the way in which his um, crit, crit, criticism of Darwin is is that it basically led to Nazism, right? There is right. this sort of way in which every which is,
1: which, is a common argument today among um, among creationists. Yes, and I think. Schaefer probably played a significant role in popularizing it, although that's something I need to
0: look into more. No, but it's definitely. I mean, if this movie is, if the series is influential, I mean, it definitely contributed to that <laughs> to that approach to things, right? Particularly if it's taught as, as curriculum in Christian colleges, one would assume they're teaching this instead of you know Darwin and uh, and evolutionary theory, right? And so, no, I think that uh, I think that that's a really interesting way in which this gets exploded and ultimately what i'm saying is the the series is about basically the creep of modernity right onto and the replacement of christianity of biblical biblically inerrant christianity with modernity which is cold and mechanical and Uh. instead of a, a narrative of progress it's a narrative of of decline and so um the the scientific revolution is a a perfect place where you see that happening as well
1: yes absolutely uh you know Schaefer is and this is a a, again an area of ambivalence that shared with the episode of the renaissance for example Schaefer loves renaissance art it comes through in that episode in everything he says he he absolutely adores uh the artistic accomplishments of renaissance europe but he's committed to a narrative in which they are a problem right and the problem is that they fundamentally are humanistic they replace god's authority with human authority his argument about the scientific revolution is ultimately similar on the one hand Christians created modern science. He's committed to this view. And he stretches his evidence in <laughs> making that that argument. Because when he says, you know, Christians are responsible for modern science, that needs to mean Bible-believing Christians. That needs to mean people who believe there's, there is truth in Scripture. And in, you know, Protestant evangelical terms. And this means that he is... Sometimes taking credit for the accomplishments of Catholics, sometimes for the accomplishments of, you know, Anglicans, of indeterminate actual spiritual beliefs um, in the early scientific revolution. Um, You know, there are very few recognizable evangelicals in his story of early science, but he really wants that to be the story he's telling. And then, by the end of that episode, he's talking about how destructive modern science has been. He's talking about how the replacement of divine authority with this, you know, this this naturalism, this view uh, that it, all of life is just matter in motion, and we discover its meaning through scientific authority. By the end of this, um, he's telling us that we're going to face a future in which the authorities put contraceptives in our water supply. He added, like, this becomes a major part of this episode because he's convinced that Modern science is drifting toward this very hard behaviorism um, in which the state will control all of our biological capacities, will control uh, what we think and believe starting in kindergarten through, you know, a, a, a detailed conditioning process that teaches children as if they were as if they were rats in a maze. This this is the this is the story of modern science for him, and it's gloriously incoherent <laughs> and amazingly paranoid by the end. But it's fascinating, yes. and it's fascinating partly because, again, his enthusiasm for modern for, for modernity's accomplishments
0: comes through in all of this. Yeah, the paradox of it all, right? Um, as someone who finds himself most at home at a rock concert or an art museum, being against. The creation of rock and roll and art, right? <laughs> it's a really interesting paradox. Um, I, I would, I would say that that's what makes it fascinating. And honestly, as a, a view, as a, as an item to view, I get the same kind of pleasure that I get from watching something like Chariots of the Gods or a Bigfoot documentary, which I don't believe, uh, but it's still like a fascinating sort of thought experiment in a lot of ways. And, and I, I feel like this is, uh, kind of what he's doing here. Um, you mentioned before about his, Redefining of Christians as a certain kind of Christian, as a biblically inerrant evangelical Christian, before that really even exists, right? Um, and, and so uh, he does that with like the formation of the American Republic as well. The, the he has an i he has this sort of mythology <laughs> that he's created about how the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and all these kind of founding documents emerge out of. Strictly biblical ideas and and you definitely take exception with that Right, and this this brings me closest to my
1: own areas of specialization, you know, I am I'm not a medievalist I'm I'm not a renaissance scholar um, but I am trained in early American history and So, you know to some extent I think I get more into the details of what Schaefer is wrong about when I talk about this episode uh, on the revolutionary age Because Schaeffer wants the revolutions of the 17th and 18th centuries, um, you know, the English Civil Wars and uh, the American Revolution, less so the French Revolution, you know, which he believes has, like a lot of people uh, in the United States, he believes went off the rails. Um, He wants to think that this revolutionary tradition that created the United States is largely a matter of Protestant theologians articulating biblical ideas about government. In particular, he focuses on the Scottish Presbyterian theologian Samuel Rutherford, um, who was a participant in the English Civil Wars. Um, Samuel Rutherford, Schaefer thinks, is basically the theologian who established the the intellectual basis for the American Revolution. And he makes this claim by arguing that Samuel Rutherford... um, well, this is the thing. He argues that um, the American founder John Witherspoon, who himself was a, a theologian and a minister, um, followed Samuel Rutherford. What he means by followed is not clear. There's no evidence that John Witherspoon actually read Samuel Rutherford that I know of. There's no evidence that John Witherspoon's revolutionary activities were a result of being inspired by. Samuel Rutherford's ideas, but Schaefer sees a similarity mm. and a similarity at these two points separated by it more than a century. I mean, a century and a half. Um, that similarity establishes a flow, mm. a flow of ideas <laughs> that lead into the sweep of the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. Now, John Witherspoon is not exactly the most prominent name among the American founders, and there's a reason for that. He was not one of the key figures of either the Declaration of Independence or the the writing of the Constitution. Um, you know, he was one of hundreds of leaders. Um, who played roles collectively in the American founding? Uh, he was also, inconveniently for some of Schaefer's later arguments, a, a slaveholder and uh, at least someone who was involved in uh, protecting slaveholding in um, in his own local political context in New Jersey. Um, so, um, Schaefer describes an American founding that is biblically christian even when the people responsible for it are not bible believing christians in his view he he makes comments about thomas jefferson being perhaps not an orthodox christian himself but basically existing in the milieu of a a basically orthodox christian society um so that his his biographer Schaefer's biographer barry hankins whom i should mention who wrote like the one um overall biography uh, of Schaefer and, and description of his work uh, called Francis Schaefer and the Shaping of Evangelical America. Barry Hankins comments about this in the context of the American Revolution, quote, it seems that for Schaefer, when a Christian utilized non-Christian thinking, you know, to produce a revolutionary outcome or something like that, the product was sub-Christian, was flawed, had this, this tragic, uh, this tragic element of failure built into it. But When a non Christian used Christian influences, the product was thoroughly Christian. End quote. The goalposts keep moving on this throughout the series, as Schaefer tries to say that you have to believe this very specific form of Christianity in order to avoid the fall of your civilization. And on the other hand, keeps running into into evidence that all of the history of European and American civilization is decisively shaped by other influences
0: yeah this is um i wanted to hover on this for just a moment because this is sort of a repeated interest that we've tackled in this show uh really from the beginning um i i did an episode a few years ago about mark knoll's book closing the event or the a scandal of the evangelical mind um and um and the scottish enlightenment is a big part of that of that story that he tells there that you mentioned here and we also did a show um years ago now about seven mountain dominionism um mm-hmm. and then also about david barton and and so i feel like i see a lot of influence in david barton um from francis Schaeffer, like particularly the way he envisions the founding of america in this messianic way right there is a way in which it's the culmination of christian um thought uh is used to create this ideal republic that we're in danger of losing now because we we've become too modern right and so um the the whole like uh, but david barton is again a sort of popular historian among quote-unquote historian among uh certain evangelicals and so yeah i feel like this is a point in which schaefer's influence is particularly powerful um and particularly relevant to understanding the state of evangelical politics today particularly the kind of christian nationalism that we see so kind of um on display
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I haven't done the research to establish David Barton's specific intellectual influences. What I can say is he was about 23 years old when this film series came out, which would put him in the same age as a lot of other people who have cited this film as key influences on their early intellectual development, like Michelle Bachman, you know, all sort of in that roughly college age range. A lot of a lot of that generation of activists have identified this series as a catalyst for their thinking about other things. So I wouldn't be surprised if the influence is direct, although I can't say for sure. I can say that David Barton goes beyond what Schaefer says, because (laughs) Schaefer is always ambivalent about the societies he's discussing. On the one hand, the American founding is based on biblical ideas. On the other hand, Humanism is already, you know, built into Western society writ large by that point, you know, for centuries, and therefore, it's the downfall uh, of this society is only a matter of time, right. uh, really. Um, and Schaefer, I think, becomes in this series a kind of an American Christian nationalist accidentally. Schaefer himself uh, famously um, argued that churches should not have American flags on display. He argued that he you know, he argued against a lot actually of the markers of Christian nationalism that we've become familiar with. This identification of patriotism with with Jesus himself, you know, and people buying garden flags with Jesus holding an American flag or things like that. This would have been, I think, horrifying to Schaefer at almost any stage of of his intellectual journey. However, He is forced by his argument by the end to suggest that the United States is this special exception to the despair and spiritual incoherence that has overtaken the rest of Western society. He does not suggest the United States is immune to what has happened, in his view, to Europe, but he believes that the United States has somehow not progressed as far Mm. perhaps there's there's this indication that maybe america has more materials for resisting this decline or or reversing it so schaefer's view of the founding leads in directions of christian nationalism that schaefer himself did not follow Mm. because otherwise it becomes very difficult to explain why the united states would, would be an exception to the general despair that Schaefer sees in the post-war world. Um, so uh, Schaefer doesn't fill in doesn't fill in the gaps. He does not argue that America is a Christian nation in some essential or fundamental way. On the contrary, he argues that it's not. And that's how we get things like the Roe v. Wade decision and a drift toward authoritarian values and, and sympathy with communism in the United States. He argues that America needs to become a Christian nation instead. And that's not actually
0: very consistent with what most Christian nationalists today argue. It's true. Uh, that's a really good point. And I think that that's, uh, if there's an evolutionary um, aspect to what he what he provided to evangelical thought uh, is sort of like step one, and it was taken other places. I, I so you brought up Roe v. Wade, um, and I, I want to get into the last two episodes of the um, uh, of the series where he sort of. It's almost like the application part of a sermon, right? <laughs> it's, uh, mm, yes. if you want to think of it in that way, it's like, so what do we do now? And, and, um, Roe v. Wade becomes this sort of like linchpin for, um, almost the whole purpose of, of the series almost culminates in this is what happened because of this drift, right? And there, and it, it assigns that particular issue, abortion, uh, legalized abortion as a kind of, um, cause to um, take up for evangelicals, and I actually, and I found a when I was looking for the series on YouTube, which the episodes are on YouTube. You can watch this. Um, I found a, a video from about ten years ago uh, with Chuck Colson, who hmm. was discuss. It was a little four minute video, like honoring Francis Schaeffer for this work, um, and he called him a prophet. Uh, literally, uh, he called him a prophet, and and he literally assigned him um, an important place in. The causes that people like Chuck Colson, uh, undertook, including, but not limited to Roe v. Wade. And so, um, and, and he, at the time, th- there was a Manhattan document, what, a Manhattan statement, some sort of like statement, uh, what was it called? Do you remember what I'm, what, what the uh, name of the, um, I
1: remember what you're referring to. Yeah. I don't remember the actual title, but he
0: refers to this, which is basically, uh, a, a, a statement where people sign on to this belief system about, how to take back America, right? And, and he maintains that Schaefer would absolutely have signed this, and and so it, he clearly is an influence on current uh, evangelical activism. Go ahead. Right.
1: It's the Manhattan Declaration, De- a call of Christian
0: conscience. <laughs> That's it. Ter- That's the declaration. Title. Thank you. Yes. Um, and so it's very important. Um, and with the recent Dobbs decision, I think it's t- very timely to look back on. Schaefer and the influence he had in the legal and cultural work that conservative Christians did in his wake to arrive where we are uh, in this, uh, in this moment with the Supreme court decision. Um, What are your thoughts on that? I know this is a touchy subject. I don't want you to go anywhere. You're not comfortable going, but well, let me say
1: this. One of the ways my rewatch series of how Should We Then Live, I think, contributes to a conversation about evangelical politics today is in suggesting a reframing of the, Ro, uh, the, the role that Roe v. Wade played in um, evangelicals' embrace of the religious right and contribution to the religious right as a movement. The story that's usually told, I think, at this point is that either... um. Evangelicals, meaning white evangelicals in this case, were largely apolitical until the Roe v Wade decision came down in 1973 and were galvanized by it and became conservative political activists in the subsequent years or. um, And this view has been popularized by Randall Balmer, who is a historian. that evangelicals embraced the religious right in large numbers, largely because of school desegregation orders, mm-hmm. including uh, the attempts of the IRS to revoke Bob Jones University's tax-exempt status starting in 1970 and culminating in a Supreme Court judgment against BJU in 1983. Um, so that so that uh, essentially racism is the reason evangelicals entered the religious right. Um a lot of historians though have have challenged this 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 pair of interpretations in different ways and i think um 20th century historians have shown very, very decisively that actually the evangelical movement was associated with political conservatism from its earliest days as an organized movement. And before that, fundamentalism as a phenomenon is associated with organized conservatism, such as it was in the early 20th century, uh, if only because of its Mm. anti-communism. Major early neo-evangelicals, as they were sometimes known originally, like Billy Graham, uh, you know, articulated stridently anti-communist views, militantly anti-union views. Uh, they were very much part of the sweep of political conservatism already by the 1950s, when, you know, Francis Schaeffer is getting his, basically his start in public life. Um, so, uh, but th- th- in any case... The story has been that Francis Schaeffer was decisive in making abortion the central issue for evangelical conservatives by the early 1980s. Um, you know, and, and his film series with C. Everett Koop, uh, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, Like that is the moment, basically, yeah. that turned evangelicals into anti-abortion activists. That's the story that's usually told. What I show in my rewatch of... How should we then live is actually first abortion and the Roe v Wade decision kind of takes over the end of this this series Frank Schaefer uh, Francis's son has taken the, the credit and or blame for that um you know he he says that he became uh, an anti-abortion activist as a very young man because basically of the birth of his his first child like turned him in it, it, like made him embrace what had been a largely catholic um political movement um to to ban abortion and his father had resisted this turn hadn't wanted to bring up abortion at all in the film series and they had as, as Frank rem- remembers it in a memoir that is not always reliable about the details. He, as he remembers it, he and Francis got into a screaming match early in, in film production over whether they would talk about abortion. Frank thought it was critical to make this the the thing that, that the film series um, had to say about the contemporary world. Well, what I show is, yes, abortion becomes a focal point. Of this series in 1977, which pushes, which pushes evangelical interest in abortion back a little bit, uh, at least a couple of years from whatever happened to the human race. But Schaefer in this film series understands abortion primarily as a symptom of a general turn toward authoritarian government, and he identifies it very strongly. In fact with communism in the Soviet Union. Why? It's not because of any, any role that abortion particularly plays in the Soviet Union. It's because the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade strikes Schaefer as a vivid example of arbitrary absolutes, arbitrary values taking over from the written word, which for him always ultimately comes back to the Bible. Um, he does believe that you know abortion is murder like that that is his view but that's not really his argument he takes for granted that abortion is murder in this series his argument is the Roe v Wade decision is a sign that we are about to become a dictatorship like the Soviet Union and he argues that this is only one of the signs even if it is a very vivid one and a very recent one of that looming threat,
0: and so his philosophy of biblical inerrancy essentially is almost like a corollary to strict constructionist uh, readings of, of the uh, of the of the Constitution, right? that, that is absolutely my view.
1: Uh, you know, Schaefer believes that unless you have authority written down, decisions become. Arbitrary, And it's not an accident that in this same period during these years, actually during the filming of how should we then live, Francis Schaeffer is also one of the key instigators and organizers uh, behind what becomes the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy which to this day is sort of the defining statement of, you know, across denominations, what conservative evangelicals believe about the authority of the Bible. Schaeffer delivered um, an important speech called The Watershed of the Human Race, I think. Um, um, Or because he's from Philadelphia, The Watershed. uh, (laughs) uh, Describing biblical inerrancy as the fault line. Running through Western life and encouraging eva- uh, members of the National Association of evangelicals to to hold that line uh, he delivered that speech I think in nineteen seventy six when when the film series was under production so this is part of this project of stressing the written word as the only alternative to um
0: to arbitrary values and that alone I know that Francis Schaeffer didn't invent that idea of biblical inerrancy, but he played a large role in codifying it in evangelical thought, right? And so that alone And and, and institutionalizing and, it. Yes. yes. He was he was directly
1: involved in debates within, for example, the Southern Baptist Convention, the largest evangelical Protestant denomination by a lot in the United States. He was not a Southern Baptist. His theology was actually out of step with with Southern Baptists in many ways, but he was one of the leaders of the movement that sort of Settled for Southern Baptists the issue of biblical inerrancy in favor of the inerrantist side and, and because that, until because it had been a ma- a major debate within the denomination earlier in the 1970s
0: yeah and that alone I think makes this a really makes him a really interesting figure to reflect on and, and to sort of trace a lot of our current state uh, theologically and politically uh, too because I even if I've been challenged before I, I remember during the um, Steven Mountain Dominion uh, episode, someone responded that nobody actually believes that. Um, And I'm like, well, they might not use the term, but the ideas are actually prevalent, right? And so the same thing with Francis Schaeffer. Someone might not drop the name Francis Schaeffer, but certainly you have heard arguments. I certainly have heard arguments that, well, if we don't believe in seven-day a literal creation, then we can't believe any of the Bible, right? Uh, and, and so exactly. th- that that comes directly from this line of thought. And, and so, uh, yeah, even if the person doesn't know that Francis Schaeffer is a is, is the person advocating this, uh, the ideas have been instilled in, in a much more maybe in, I don't mean insidious so negatively, but in a much more subtle uh, way. And so,
1: yeah, and you know, one of the reasons I rewatched this film series for the first time in probably twenty years, yeah. Um, And and wrote about it is that there are a lot of people, I I think, with, you know, backgrounds like ours in various ways who may find a lot recognizable Mm -hmm. about this and may find that this that that a, a detailed look at this film series can help explain a lot about the culture or subculture that that they grew up in or that they joined perhaps as adults
0: yeah um i I, I want to say one more thing and then I'll let you wrap up wherever you'd like to but I I am torn um, about objects like this like artistic objects like this because um, I I pride myself on being a dilettante <laughs> this is not to me a, an insult like I I, I readily claim that um, that that banner uh, as Matthew Arnold did I suppose and so um but again I'm trying to throw his name out there just to subtly put it in the subconscious of the world. But the, um, but, and so I pride, I, I actually am a, attracted to people who step out of their, their lane and, and create something that's essentially creative, right. Um, and, and does some and makes an argument. And so, and that's why I, I find the whole ancient alien stuff fascinating. I don't believe it, of course, uh, but I find it fascinating. But at the same time, when something like that, gets taken more seriously than it should, uh, I think that it has pernicious effects on on the culture of the people who are taking it seriously. And so someone who actually believes Eric Von Daniken's account of human origins and ancient alien theory, um, they're way off. And, and that's actually um, not a good thing to actually believe it, right? And so for the same reason, Francis Schaeffer's like... Grand narrative of the flow of history has like an aesthetic appeal, but I, I do find it like disturbing when it's taken like true as truth and literal. And so I, I find myself very torn. Maybe there's a little bit of Francis Schaeffer in me, I, I suppose, in, in in the paradoxes, uh, in the the discontinuities, this uh, continuities, excuse me, um, th- that he has in his his person, because I find myself both attracted to and repulsed by this project. Like I'm attracted to the project, I'm repulsed by the reception of the project, and, and so I I don't know if you have any thoughts on that <laughs> way to make me reconcile my own kind of incoherence.
1: Well, I think that's my experience too. Okay. Uh, there's a lot that's attractive about Schaefer's work. Some of it is aesthetic, as you say. I mean, it, it's it really is an interesting film series to watch, yeah. and it's interesting partly because it was so amateurish, yeah. and it's interesting partly because the this film crew lucked into again getting to film like inches away from the the greatest works of art in uh, in, in European history. The, the, uh, it's a wild thing just
0: to witness. Let me just interrupt the amateurishness. You pointed out in one blog post about him sitting with an umbrella, <laughs> like looking at a map under an umbrella while right. it's raining. It's a hilarious shot. And so you're right. When I saw that, I, I started laughing, but go ahead. Okay. But,
1: but it creates a kind of a, you are there effect yes. and you can identify with Schaefer, I think, uh, more than maybe with a yes. more polished yes. presenter. Um, because he's, if fundamentally, he's some guy, not, not a television
0: professional. And, and this is possibly my point, right? So he's, he comes across closer to one of us rather than an academic who's gatekeeping truth and history, right? This is sort of right. making it accessible, but he's mediating it in such a dangerous way. And so go ahead. Right. Also, th- this would be
1: uh, a mistake to omit from this conversation, a lot of evangelicals and former evangelicals credit francis Schaeffer for opening up their taste and um making them uh not only willing but eager to embrace secular art Mm. to enjoy you know the, the works of different societies um i had a college professor who vividly remembered a speech that Francis Schaeffer gave to him when he was in college, um, you know, at, at a Christian institution um, that was all about enjoying art because it's good. Yeah, And that comes through in this series in spite of Schaeffer's own ambivalence. And it comes through in his other work as well. Um, a lot of people who read philosophy today probably read it in part because at some point they were exposed to Francis Schaeffer's giving permission to evangelical Christians and fundamentalist Christians to read philosophy and take it seriously. Um, that, that that authorization to go ahead and ask questions and try to, to follow them and to try to find answers to them. That's a very real and a very important part of Schaeffer's legacy. So it would be a mistake to focus only on his, the 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 argumentative bottom line of this series because a lot of its effects are in these more ephemeral ways in you know the fact that fewer evangelicals today uh, believe it's sinful to watch a movie than you know might have been the case In the 1960s and i mean that very literally um you know (laughs) the 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 shift from more fundamentalist values to what are often more um more uh i mean dare i say christian humanist values of evangelicalism today um that shift is partly a result of francis schaeffer's work and probably probably more so than we realize rather than rather than less
0: yeah, that that's sort of a part like where I'm falling down on this because yeah, as you know, the Christian Humanist Radio Network th- that there's a paradox built into that name for a lot of people, right? Now there is a, a legitimate tradition of Christian Humanism, Humanism going back to Erasmus and and whatnot, but uh, for modern you know Christians, when you throw that name that title out there. It, it causes pause and they don't understand right. how those two things can, can exist together. And in some ways, Francis Schaeffer um, set the precedent for, for a lot of people or, or, you know, made it, made them permissible.
1: And, and maybe that is the central paradox of, of this, this series. Francis Schaeffer made humanism a bad word yeah. for evangelicals. That was one of the, the key things he was trying to accomplish in this series and he accomplished it very effectively and yet much of what we see on the screen is actually an example of Christian humanism <laughs> in in practice Exactly, um, it comes across in the joy of the series in spite of itself and I make no apologies for enjoying it because of that even though I think the historical argument is a missed opportunity one that you know, without going too much into contemporary politics, I think has had some really pernicious effects in real life. Um, uh, In the end, um, you know, I, I enjoyed rewatching this show and I, I enjoyed maybe helping other people figure out what the big deal was and, and why it was so influential at the time.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, Maybe I have a bit of Keats and the whole idea of negative capability, uh, in me, (laughs) but, uh, but I do feel like I'm able to watch something like this, enjoy it and understand its flaws at the same time. And, uh, and, and so I do think that, um, that's the, there's almost a way in which this kind of work gets sort of mechanically weaponized, um, by people like Chuck Colson, right? Uh, and, and it becomes, um, it 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 become i don't know i don't know how to say what i'm saying but it becomes something that is is didactic and rather than um just aesthetic and and, and i think that, that that's sort of the problem and and so yeah i really enjoyed experiencing it uh, and it had you not brought it up i would have not have known to go to it but it really did kind of shed a lot of light on where we are today um and it also sort of brought back the really the importance of the 1970s as a moment of really interesting and, you know, troubling transition for not just American culture, but but Christian culture as well, evangelical Christian culture in America, particularly. So I really appreciated this conversation, Jonathan. Uh, Do you have any kind of final thoughts or have you uh, said your, said your piece?
1: Well, I find myself wishing that some uh, evangelical billionaire would fund A version of this project today that's all about enjoyment and celebration that's about appreciation for what all kinds of people in the world and uh, ideally not only in the West but around the world have been able to do in glorifying God through creativity in uh, expressing the breadth of what is possible in God's creation not as a, a warning sign about the, you know the the collapse of everything good and the coming apocalypse, but rather as a reminder that century after century, millennia after millennia, in society, in society after society, humans have found ways to create things that are good and beautiful, and that edify and th- that bring us closer to true values in life
0: yeah and if there are any billionaires out there looking for, I, I know a radio network that would uh, gladly take your money the christian humanist radio network is sort of the cause celeb for the cause for being for us so um jonathan wilson thank you so much for um uh, Absolutely. thank you so much for joining us today and uh i hope you have a nice day i have the link to this blog post series in the the description for this episode and uh, I highly urge you to read it. It's a very entertaining read. You write. I didn't get on. I didn't even congratulate you on how well you write uh, but it's definitely engaging and very interesting. Jonathan Wilson thank you for joining us for another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Thanks so much. (laughs)